Would you please remain standing as I read today's sermon text? It's once again from 1 Corinthians 13. The whole chapter is printed again in your bulletins, but we'll focus today specifically on verses 8 through 12. So follow along as I read these verses. This is the inspired word of God. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we thank you for the joy that is to be found therein. We pray that you would show it to us this morning, that we might know it in our hearts, and find it through Jesus our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, that's the theme for the third Sunday of Advent. It's joy. And we're all looking for joy, aren't we? I mean, that's, that's one thing that, that, that I've always appreciated about the Advent season, the whole season around Christmas, is the fact that people tend to be a little bit more joyful than normal. It seems to be that, that there is a spirit of joy because this is a season of joy. And yet, because our joy is often misfounded, it does not prove to be a true and lasting joy. So we look to today's text, and I think it gives us a, a roadmap of sorts as how we can find such a joy, a true and lasting joy, a joy that we can count on, that we can depend upon. And it tells us that true joy comes in realizing the ultimate gift, the ultimate goal, and the ultimate good. First of all, the ultimate gift. This is a, a season of gifts, isn't it? Uh, many of us will buy gifts for loved ones. Some of us already have bought gifts for loved ones that we will share at Christmas, and we will do so with the desire that they will enjoy these gifts. And all the better if they can enjoy them, not just on that one day, that morning, but if they can enjoy them over and over and over again, and, and each time they enjoy them, they, they think about how very much we love them, right? It's a gift that keeps on giving, as they say. That was the slogan that Kodak Camera used in 1977 when they had an ad campaign for the Kodak Trimline Instamatic 18 camera. Right? They called it the gift that keeps on giving, picture after picture. And that was their, their ad campaign that they went back to time and time again. They weren't the first to use it. There were many others who have used this same slogan in their ad campaigns around Christmas. Uh, 
dating as far back as the 1920s, Victor Radio, Hot Point Appliances, Dumont Electronics, no doubt many others have used this same idea of the gift that keeps on giving. Well, regardless of whether it's any of those other products or a Kodak camera, there is a, a wonderful sense in which it gives more than once, it keeps on giving, but, but none of them truly keep on giving, do they? Ultimately, they wear out. They get old, they break, they get lost. They fall into disrepair, they get out of style, we throw them away. Something happens to where they no longer give. While cameras and other such gifts we can only enjoy for a certain amount of time, there is a gift that does truly keep on giving. And that is the ultimate gift, love. Love is the ultimate gift, and love, we read in verse 8, never ends. Love is eternal, and we tend to think of eternal as a, as a time word, first and foremost, and, and it is, and we'll come back to that sense, of, that, that sense of the word or that aspect of the word in just a moment, but first I want to look at kind of an, another angle at the word eternal, the fact that love never ends, it, it could also be said, right, that love always perseveres. That's kind of the other angle to it. It never ends in terms of time, but it also never ends in terms of resilience, right? There's nothing that can come up against love that will stop it, that will defeat it. It will endure anything for the sake of the beloved. In fact, that, that really could be kind of a, an idea of what love is if we wanted to come up with a definition, right? It, it, is, it is a sense and an idea and a feeling and a, a commitment and all these things wound up and bound together that no matter what it should face, it will seek the good of another, even at detriment to itself, right? It's, it's an incredibly powerful force. Many people have said as much, quotes have been, attributed to the likes of Einstein, Gandhi, Rockefeller, and many others calling love the strongest thing in all the world. I don't know if any of those people actually said that. But it is true that love is indeed strong. It will cause people to do things that are radically against their own self-interest for the good of another. And we see this most perfectly, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. He who is one with the Father, who is God in the flesh. God who says he is love. Jesus is the personification of, the love, of love. And, and indeed, when love came down at Christmas in the person of Jesus, he did so as a blessing for us to his own cost. Right? Love came down at Christmas, and when it did, nothing could stop it. Love came down that we might know joy. Not a fleeting happiness for just a moment. Not, not just some sense of pleasantness. But true and lasting and eternal joy. Nothing can stop love. Love will endure anything. Think of all that Jesus endured for you. Think of all that Jesus endured for you. Just in taking on human flesh was was an incredible step down for him. 
an incredible act of humility to set aside his glory and to take on human flesh, to step out of eternity and into time, and to do so as a little baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths. You know, just think about it. When Jesus was a little baby, here he was, who had been with the Father perfectly in all glory from the beginning of time, who had created all things and who by the power of his word had held all things together. And now he was a baby wrapped in cloths, wetting himself, needing his diaper changed. What an act of humility on his behalf to endure so much for us. Of course, he endured much more, right? He endured the, the confusion of his family. He endured the, the betrayal and denial and, and, and all the frustrations of having disciples who just couldn't quite seem to get it. And he, of course, ultimately endured the cross for your sake and for mine. Nails piercing him through, giving up his very life for me and for you. Love never ends. There is a time aspect to it as well, though. Like we said before, love endures trials, but it also endures all time. God is love, and God is eternal. Right? He, he never ends. And on the last day, when everything else is gone, love will still abide. Love will still remain, right? And that's contrasted to other spiritual gifts, right? That's what Paul's trying to say to the Corinthians here. He's saying to them, you know, you have all these gifts, tongues and prophecy and and knowledge and maybe other gifts too, maybe gifts of healing and whatever else, whatever gifts you might have whatever abilities you might have. They were all highly praised in Corinth, right? They were very highly thought of them. They thought of these gifts as being all that. Those were the really super spiritual people, the people who had these gifts, right? And they had gifts. They did. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Back in chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Right? He's saying, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is a gifted church. They thought a lot about those people who had those gifts. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that these gifts are not the ultimate sign of spirituality. As impressive as they may be, they are not the ultimate. In fact, at the end, all these things will be gone. Verse eight, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. All of these things supposed to be signs of God's God's blessing to them, and indeed they were as well as other signs, right? They, they might have healing or wealth or eloquence or, or a great business acumen or, or great marketing strategies or whatever they had for, for themselves and for the church. These are wonderful gifts, wonderful blessings, but they're all imperfect. 
Imperfect both in that we never have those things perfectly. Even a gift that is used is, is used imperfectly. Not all the time perfectly. But also imperfect in that it will end in eternity. Right? Because those gifts are but shadows of a truer reality. Right? They point us to, to a greater truth. And verse 10 tells us that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Right? Those gifts will pass away. And, and it causes me to think, you know, what, what, what things do we elevate? What things do we elevate and highly prize and lift up and say, that's where it's at? When in reality, those things will pass away one day. Right? Maybe it's gifts or maybe it's, maybe it's something like position or wealth. Right? In, our, in our culture, certainly those are things that are highly esteemed. Maybe it's even a good thing, like wisdom or even family. We might hold these things up as being the ultimate. But we could gain all these things and still be lost. And as Luke, as we read in Luke, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Right? We, we chase after all these other things because we're looking after the wrong goals. Instead of that, we need to look at the ultimate goal. Right? The ultimate goal. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Literally, he says, be mature as God is mature. Right? You just have the same level of maturity as God has. That's all that's required. Maturity is the ultimate goal. That's the same idea we find here. The goal is maturity. When I was a child, verse 11 tells us, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, of course, full maturity, perfect maturity, will only come when Christ Jesus returns. All things are set to right, and we are changed, we are transformed, and we will become perfectly mature, but that does not mean we are not supposed to seek maturity now. Right? Paul talks about here that, that as he grew, became more mature, he set aside childish ways. We are called to do the same. We kind of innately understand the importance of this, really, don't we? I mean, if you have a baby who is drooling on himself, and, and taking his food and just kind of wiping it all over his face. That's kind of cute, right? I mean, you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? If I were to do it, you might not think it was quite so cute, right? You'd say, what's wrong with him? Because I'm supposedly mature, right? And I shouldn't act like a baby, that's what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians. He's saying, you guys are adults, aren't you? You're adults, but you're acting like babies. Don't act like babies. Act like adults. A baby is the center of their own whole world, right? The center of their attention is on them. They don't, they don't ask if it would be convenient. Pardon me, would it be convenient for you to feed me now because I'm becoming a little bit hungry, or, or should I schedule a different time to eat? Right? That's, that's not the way the babies do it. They cry. 
They cry because they want their food now. Feed me. Now. Now, 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 now. Right? That's, that's what they do. Yeah, exactly. But as we become more mature, we realize we can't do this, right? Because the whole world doesn't center around me. It's not all about me. No longer is it understandable or acceptable for me to have this kind of mindset. I need to realize that things are for others as well. You see, that was the problem in Corinth. The church was very capable, very gifted, but they were acting like babies. And they saw the gifts as things that were just for them. It's for me, 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 me. Right? Uh, they were ultimately concerned with themselves and what they wanted and what they thought they deserved and, and what they were concerned about in their minds. And, and they weren't just concerned about others. Chapter 11 talks about how this was impacting the way they took the Lord's Supper. And to the point where Paul even says to them, because of your mindset, your selfish mindset, because it's so self-oriented, what you're doing is not even taking the Lord's Supper, right? Even as you think you're doing it, right? It's not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate. Because you're babies. Stop being babies. I love what Ferguson says in the devotional that we've been working our way through. He, he talks about gifts and how we often use them in a sense like, like a telescope, right? But, but sometimes what we do is we, we use our gifts like a telescope that we've turned around the wrong way, right? And as you look into a telescope that's turned down around the wrong way, right, it makes everybody else look really small, right? But as they would look through it, I would look really big, right? And we think that that's kind of how gifts should be exercised, right? I show this gift, I exercise this gift, and I do so to make myself really big. He says, no, that's not it at all. It's the exact opposite of what we should be doing, right? We utilize our gifts for the good of others to build them up. And if we must look small in doing that, then that's all the better. What is it that, right, John the Baptist says, I must decrease that he would increase. So we need to have that mindset that is, is not looking after ourselves and our wishes and our desires and our happiness, but rather looking out for others. Right? We might think that we are more mature than others because, because we've spent more time in prayer or more time reading the Bible or more time coming to church or, or we've got more Bible verses memorized or we've got a more well-developed theological construct and understanding. We've, we've studied systematic theologies and we've got this all figured out and wrapped into a nice tiny package with a bow around it. But Paul says here that if you don't love others selflessly, then you have not put aside childish ways. You're acting like a baby for all your spiritual gifts, for all your abilities, for all your knowledge, for all your wisdom. You're being like a baby. That's what Paul says here. Remember, the Pharisees had the most rigorous spiritual disciplines. They spent the most time in prayer. 
They had the most Bible verses memorized. They knew the Word of God inside and out. They had figured out all the complex theological doctrines. They displayed all the outward behaviors that a religious person was supposed to display. And they crucified Jesus. Because they had not love in their hearts. According to God's word, love is the one thing that we should most value. The love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus and the love of God that we should have for God and for others in response to that love. Sometimes we we think we love God pretty well, don't we? We think we've, we've got that part down at least, but we need to realize that if we are not loving others, then we cannot be loving God. Right? And, and the Apostle John tells us that Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when Jesus reinstated Peter after Peter had denied Jesus three times. He, he gave him a little quiz first, a little, little quiz. He had three questions for him. But it was not a theological exam. He didn't ask him for his favorite Bible verse. He didn't ask him to outline a book of the Bible. He didn't ask him for any other seminary-type questions. What was it that Jesus asked him John tells us when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my, tend, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, he said, you can have all the gifts and the abilities. You can have leadership capabilities. You can have speaking ability. You can have boldness of faith. You can have all these things if you have not love. Then you have nothing. Well, if we need love, that means we need to get it. Where do we get it? How do we find it, right? That's, that's the question that follows from that. That's the natural question. If you're telling me I have to have love, Pete, where do I find it? Well, we find it by looking to Jesus, of course. We look to Jesus. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. And Corinth was famous for its mirrors, right? Just like Flint is famous for its cars, Corinth was famous for its mirrors, but most people wouldn't have had a fancy mirror. They would have had a cheap, run-of-the-mill mirror, which back then especially would have been very hazy, smoky, foggy. You couldn't see much in it. It would give you a very low-quality reflection, kind of a vague, shadowy representation of, of who you were. And that's how our vision of Jesus is now. Right? Maybe it's a little bit better or a little bit worse, but, but for all of us, it's less than perfect. It's a dim, smoky, shadowy image that somehow relates to him a little, 
but it leaves a lot to the imagination. And we're all too willing to fill it with our own imagination, right? We constructed Jesus that is how we want Jesus to be. We constructed Jesus that, that affirms us <laughs> as opposed to convicting us of our sin. But one day we will see Jesus as he truly is. We will have a clear view of Jesus. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. How does this happen? John tells us, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Not the Jesus we imagine, not the Jesus we create in our minds, but the Jesus who is. That's the one we will behold. That's the one that we will, we will worship and adore. And that's the one who will change who we are. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's the ultimate good. The ultimate good is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus as he is, as he truly is. Seeing him face to face, right? In our unison scripture reading earlier, we talked about it. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You know, the idea of seeing God face to face is, is breathtaking. Remember what God said to Moses. Moses said, God, I, I just want to catch a glimpse of you. And, and God says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let my glory pass by. And, and you can kind of catch me as I'm fading away in the distance, right? But you can't see my face. You can't see my face. That's ridiculous, Moses. Because if you saw my face, you would die. You would die because you are a sinful man. My glory would just strike you dead right there. But see, in Jesus as he returns, we're clothed in his righteousness. We're made holy by his sacrifice. We're made right and pure and true and beautiful in his eyes. And we will be able to hold him in our gaze, his beautiful, glorious, wonderful face before ours. And we will be changed. We'll be transformed, we're told. We'll, we'll be transformed because we will know him as he truly is, just as we are truly known by him, right? Knowing isn't just a, a, an intellectual thing that's going on here, right? It's not just an information word, right? It's a relationship word in the Bible. When it talks about knowing, it's talking about intimacy of relationship. He says, you will, you will know me just as I know you. We will have that intimate relationship with Jesus. Right? You can know how tall someone is or what color their eyes and their hair are and not know them. Right? You, can, you can know where they grew up and who is in their family and, and not know them. You can know what their job is and their hobbies are. And you can even know what their IQ is and not know them. Right? The idea is not that we will know about Jesus. We will know Jesus. Perfectly. 
just as he knows us perfectly and loves us perfectly. And through him, we will love perfectly because we will know love perfectly. See, our problem is we don't know how much we're loved. We don't truly know how much we're loved by God. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us. That by, by reaching out to hold him by faith, we might be clothed in his righteousness, that we might have salvation in him. So our problem now is that we, we don't know how much we are loved. We need to look to the incarnation when love came down. We need to look to the cross where love paid the penalty of our sin. We need to look to the second advent of Christ where he will return and set all things to right. No more will sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground for he will come and make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise. And we look forward to that joy which will be ours on that day. We look to Jesus and we rejoice. We don't look to our circumstances to find our joy. right? Instead, we, we determine our joy on the basis not of what we perceive to be true about our circumstances, but rather on the basis of what we know to be true about the God who superintends our circumstances. He loves us. And he has shown us his love. And he will continue to show us that love forever and ever, for it never ends. And if that's not a reason to be joyful, I don't know what is. Other than this, perhaps, what we read in the Houston Scripture reading, behold, I am coming soon. This isn't just some far-off promise that we'll never really see, you know? You make that kind of promise. Oh, uh, someday I'll get to that. No, you won't. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. And we can believe him, we can trust him. And that is why we can sing joy to the world. Because love came down at Christmas. And it is coming again. Praise be to God. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the joy that is ours. We thank you for the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. In his first coming, where he represented us, doing the work we could not do and dying the death we could not die and rising up from the dead defeating sin and death and Satan, winning that victory for us that we might know true joy. And we thank you that he is coming again. We look forward to that day. and We sing and shout and pray and praise and live as if that day were already here because it is every bit as sure as if it were. So receive our praise now, for we offer it in his name. Amen. Would you rise now as we sing?
together, hymn number 299, Joy to the World. <laughs> 